Well, good morning, Steamtown. I would like to introduce our guest speaker today, Dr. Dow Pursley. I am so thankful that the Lord and his plan uh, saved you, Dow. And uh, it has been an honor to get to know you. You've been a fantastic mentor in my life. I just want to give a couple fun facts about Dr. Pursley. Dr. Percy was on the winning team of the 1961 Little League World Series. And in fact, that was your first time that uh, you came to Pennsylvania. Dr. Persley uh, went and searched for Noah's Ark three times in Turkey on Mount Ararat. And there's some incredible stories uh, behind that journey. And Dr. Persley has devoted his life to the ministry of biblical counseling. And um, I can only imagine how many lives have been impacted through your life. And so, we give God all of the glory for what he's done in your life. Uh, Joanne cannot be with us this morning, but we are definitely thinking of her, and we're thinking of uh, your kids, your grandkids, and your great-grandchildren. And so would you give a Steamtown welcome to Dr. Dow Persley. I love Steamtown Church. I was here when it all began, praying, hoping, willing to see it happen, waiting to see it happen, wanting to see it happen. The gospel is mighty to save, to the pulling down of strongholds. 1 Corinthians 10.4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. I was reading this morning in Romans and chapter 10, and it says this, How shall they call on him who they have not believed? And how shall they believe him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Some of you have been going to Steamtown from the beginning, and some of you, I'm sure, are new here. Most of you probably know the story. But I know one thing. Years of bad living can produce many more years of bad living. But when the gospel was taken to Scranton, Pennsylvania, first by three young men, 
your pastor Pete, your pastor Dennis, and another pastor, Matt, we had a perfect storm, really. Uh, Pete grew up in a pastor's home and is a great pastor. Dennis, a great evangelist. And Matt, he was a great apologist. And when they came into town, they preached the gospel every Friday night in rain, in snow, in the open air, on the streets, and in the park for two years. Now in Scranton, that's dedication. God brought strongholds down in individuals, in the lives of entire families, strongholds of alcoholism, of drug addiction, of sexual immorality, of abortion, of idol worship, and generational sins. You can imagine that these young men and women who came into town and came into this city and started preaching on the streets caused quite a stir. And do you not think your pastors and their friends didn't face opposition in trials by their families, by friends, by religionists? Do you think they weren't threatened and bullied and pleaded with to stop the stuff they were doing? That zealous foolery? These men and women in their youth are what Romans is talking about here. They were called, they were constrained to preach the gospel that's mighty to save. They were called to this city, your city, Scranton. A church I once went to had a song, and it said this, God, we love this city. Please show mercy here. They love this city. And I love this city. I was only here 12 years. But I grew to love it. But I especially grew to love the ministry here. I love the music. I love how when people walk into the church, they're greeted. I like how they ask about what their giftings are. How they put them to work right away. And... Uh, it's amazing. You know, you can sit in a lot of churches for a long time. Nobody knows who you are, what you do, what your gifts are. You just sit there and maybe hoping someday I might be able to use my spiritual gifts in this church. Not here. You're going to be put to work right away. Thank God for that. 
God gave them a mission. He gave them a vision. And most of all, he gave them the energizing power of the Holy Spirit to see the lives of many transformed by the humble preaching of God's Word. I'm telling you folks, I am absolutely sure it took Satan by surprise and it gave their guardian angels many sleepless nights. And then others joined the work and it began to grow. That same gospel that they preached, that they preached then is still mighty to save, mighty to pull down strongholds in your lives today and in my life today, mighty to save your marriages, mighty to save your children, mighty to reach back two generations and save your parents and grandparents, mighty to reach forward and save your grandchildren and your children and your great-grandchildren. I met my wife when she was 15 years old. I married her when she was 17. That was the longest two years of my life, waiting two years before we could get married. Now people today would probably say, well, that was rather foolish. <clears throat> it was the greatest day of my life. I proposed to her while I was in Marine Corps boot camp. I snuck out of the barracks at night. I got off the base and I, I snuck to a phone and I called her and proposed. Then I went back to the barracks, didn't get caught, and I did it again. I thought that was pretty easy. I'm going to go talk to her a little more. So I went and talked to her some more. She said yes. Her father had, ch had chased Pancho Villa on horseback with General Pershing's army. And he was in the trenches in World War I. He switched from the army to the Marines. Then he was in Guadalcanal. He was in Bella Woods, almost every major campaign. He was one battle-hardened guy. He went from private to captain, and all battlefield promotions, wounded in battle, back in battle again, hardcore. He was a hardcore drinker. They weren't, uh, when, when they had Joanne, he was 55 years old. His military career was over. And her mom was 39, so it was like growing up with your grandparents. Except her dad wasn't like a grandparent. He was drinking all the time. 
It was sad. He, even when he was in his 80s, he would go to the VFW club and drink with all the young girls and dance with them. Young girls were 60, right? <laughs> he would drink a fifth of whiskey. Sometimes he'd make it home. Sometimes he ended in the ditch. That was the household she grew up in. Her mother, we, she was married five times. The father, we don't really know for sure, but we think maybe 13 times. They divorced when she was 11. And by the way, that's the worst age for your parents to go to, through a divorce emotionally. That's what all the research says. Not that every age isn't important and every age doesn't hurt, but that's, that was her story. She spent a lot of time alone as a child. Had a lot of hurts from her past. But we started off and it was all fun until I had to go to Vietnam and she had to finish two more years of high school. <laughs> so we had some tribulation in our life. I won't go into it, but I will say that at 67, her mother became a Christian. She was the most bitter woman I had ever met in my entire life. Bitter because of her divorces, her life situation. When she got saved, she was transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. She didn't like me at all when Joanna and I married. Not at all. She had good reason. I got mad one night because she wouldn't let Joanne leave with me and I backed out of her driveway really quick in my little Thunderbird and ran over her trash cans. She was a single parent at that time. That cost her money. And I was a foolish teenager. She was mad at me. I remember buying her new tires once long after this. And I remember taking her car and getting it fixed. And it was an old car. She was living in a trailer out in California at the time. Her life had really gone down. And I, I remember pulling off the side of the road as I was coming back to her house. And I said, God, I don't expect her to thank me but just don't have her complain about the tires I bought. <laughs> and uh, she didn't, so I was happy. She didn't like me. My wife asked me one day, she said, why do you treat my mother so well? I said, because I love you. That's why. My parents, my, my mother was liberal. My father was a practical atheist and sometimes a little belligerent about it. I was the first one saved in my family. Joan was the first one saved in her family. And then my father was saved at 59 and a half. And my mother was saved just a few weeks before him. 
my father had left my mother. I, at that time, was doing Christian counseling, flew out and met my father in his office. He said, uh, when he first walked in and saw me, he didn't know I was coming. He said, God, I'm a reprobate. I said, I know it. Sit down, let's talk. I said, you know, you're an embarrassment to me. I said, uh, I named my son after you. And if you don't go home to my mother, you will never see a grandchild. So you need to think about this move. He said, I'll go home. And he did. I won't go into it all, but God gloriously saved him. He ended up a deacon in a church. He, he grew. My mom grew. My mom was saved reading the book that the guy wrote that I worked with, Love Life for Every Married Couple. If you haven't read it, read it. You can get it for a dollar. It'll cost more to ship it to you on eight books. Great book. She prayed the prayer in that book of salvation and her life transformed. We face strongholds, the strongholds of sin the world, from the flesh, and from the devil. We all do. Our sins, our parents' sins, and even our great-grandparents' sins. So you have to ask yourself, what are the strongholds that Satan has trapped you in? How did he lure you into those temptations that caused the sin? Did he throw out the golden bait of pornography? Did he send a man or a woman to tempt you into adultery? Did he offer you a drug that helped you survive or at least helped you to make you more acceptable to your friends? Or was it alcohol? Or is it alcohol? God wants to deliver you from those things. He wants to save you from all the lies that you have believed, all the choices that you've made and the destruction that you're causing. Satan threw out the golden bait, you bit on the lure, and he takes you captive at his will. So that you become one of Satan's trophies, dangling over hell with that golden bait in your mouth, an example of a weak-willed, compliant prisoner of sin and a prisoner of the destruction it will bring to the third and fourth generations of those that hate God. Satan deludes us all into thinking we're okay. Oh, well, I I prayed a prayer of salvation when I was five. I lived like hell all my life, but I'll still somehow struggle into heaven. 
That's not the gospel, and that's not the power of the gospel. That's wishful thinking. That's duped thinking. And we are duped by a liar, a thief, and a fraud. And that's our enemy. And that's Satan. 2 Timothy 2.26 Paul says to Timothy talk to these folks that they might recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. You no longer have a will. You do everything the liar, the thief, wants you to do and you think you're fine that's why the Bible tells us constantly to give diligence to make our calling and election sure in 1 Peter 5.8 the Bible says be sober and diligent because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And it says to resist him steadfastly in the faith. In warfare, we have to be, if we're going to win, we have to be unpredictable to our enemies. And we are in warfare, spiritual warfare. So we have to do what is supernatural, what is natural, will not work. We repay evil with good. We repay cursings with blessings. Just the opposite of what our flesh wants to do. Bad theology also produces bad living. You can turn your television set on any Sunday and hear the world's heretics. Your best life now. Who needs heaven? You can get your best life now, right? That's from the pit of hell. And there's so many of them. These miraculous people who work miracles by shoving people until they fall over. I said about Benny Hinn, the only thing that's miraculous about him is how does he get his hair to do that? Bad living and bad theology. That's why we have to be diligent in our studies of the scriptures so we can know the difference between truth and error. Bad marriages teach children bad habits. And they act those out when they get married. Bad parenting produces bad examples that can affect their children's lives for years. Our first parents sinned and their son killed his brother. And the ground where he died 
the Bible says his blood cried out to God for justice. Our first parents' sinful choices led to marital disunity. When a couple's not right with God, they'll never be right with each other. Did not our first father blame his wife for his sin? And did not our first mother blame God for her sin? And did not our first brother not attempt to wreck the family and destroy his parents' marriage by killing his righteous brother? See, Adrian Rogers once said that Jesus knew that sin turned angels into demons and turned men into beasts. And it's true. Divorce affects at least 100 people that are close to the couple that are divorced. Negatively impacts 100 people directly and many more indirectly. And when it happens in a church, everyone in the church. We have to realize that the life that we live is the legacy that we leave to future generations. We have to really see that so that we make our plans in marriage so that we don't fail. And folks, whoever you're married to right now, God wants you to stay with that person for the rest of your life. Learn how to love each other. You can do it. Sin leaves a legacy of despair, of hopelessness, and destruction. When your children find out about your secret sins, your legacy ends. Your children's lives to the third and fourth generations are affected. And the way sin, the way sin actually works is we're tempted. That's not sin. We hesitate. We're in trouble. And then we participate. So we have to stop it right at the temptation level. It's not sin to be tempted. That's a new normal since sin entered the world. There hasn't been any other original sin since the garden. It's all the same. Satan just recycles it for the next generation. We're in a war. A war for souls. For ours, for our children, for our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren and the souls of each person that we come into contact with. God doesn't put everyone into our path, but when he does, when he does, it's a soul for whom Christ died. An eternal soul. And that eternal soul, we had better never exploit, mislead, or emotionally injure because we will be judged by God for that. You might think some of these 
preacher frauds are getting rich and enjoying life. They're not going to enjoy hell and they're going to go to hell in a rubber casket and they're going to take nothing with them because the Bible says it and even if they did where they're going it's going to melt. So be careful little ears who you listen to. That's why we in church history look at all the councils because as soon as a heresy came up they wanted to nail it down stop it right then so it didn't carry on in the church and now we're watching them on TV. We're not quite as diligent. We, we must see everyone as a soul, an eternal soul that Christ died for. If you leave your children's training to the school system and their friends, you will not produce world changers. What you do as a parent does matter. Your choreographed training for your charges can turn wimpy little crybabies into warriors for God's, for his kingdom in the future because they will be kingdom-minded men and women. Men and women of faith for the next generation. Many mothers see themselves as people who have sacrificed their prime time in life for their children. And I will say this, that's exactly what a good mother does. She sacrifices her prime time in life for her children. So if you've done that, you might really be ready to understand what this Christian life is all about. People today are generally commitment phobic, producing self-indulgent sinners and whiners. If you and your mate don't plan your marriage and plan your family life together with great diligence and great grace, your family will fail. Bible says, how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Well, who's going to get the word in their heart? Well, it's you and your mate. You're going to diligently get God's word into your children's heart and lives. I remember some parents that brought their daughter in for counseling who had what the we call selective mutism, just meant she stopped talking. Why did she stop talking? That was the first question I asked her in front of her mother. Why have you stopped talking? And she answered me. The selective mute answered me. It seems that her mother had a warrior in the making. She was on the phone, and she only got so much time to be on the phone, and her time was up. So the mother says to her, get off the phone. 
That's what she did. The mother says it again. Get off the phone right now. Now, I'm sure her mother thought she was doing the right thing. But when we have a teenager that we've been training all our life to be godly, we have to use a little common sense, folks. She was talking to her 15-year-old schoolmate who found out that day that she was pregnant was trying to decide whether to kill herself or have an abortion. And she ends up having to hang up the phone. The mother hears it all in the office and says, I'm so sorry. Wow. He was becoming a warrior. Her parents didn't know it. Now, on the other hand, if you idolize your, idolize your children, you won't produce any warriors either. <clears throat> I had another little girl that came in and she said she was a bad person. And her mother says, oh, no, no, you're, you're a good person. We just brought you in because we know you're a little depressed. I said, let her talk. Let her talk. When she finished her story, the mother looked at her and says, you are a bad person. And she really was. I mean, we all are. But you can do a lot of damage early in your life. I did. I know that. By the time you're 18, you can, you can do a lot of damage. She had. So she was a wimp. She was entangled in a web of sin. And her parents thought she was okay. Just needed a little help. She needed a lot of repentance. Overindulging your children is always a bad idea. People do it today like it's nothing. I live in the richest part of the world, the Walmart headquarters part of the world, the J.B. Hunt headquarters, the Tyson headquarters, and I could go on and on, the Jones truck line. It's just very wealthy area, and parents tend to be very indulgent. A guy gave his 16-year-old daughter on her birthday, she was working at a little pizza hut, he brought the keys in, he said, these keys will match a car out there in the parking lot, just ask a couple things. One, don't drink and drive. Two, put your seatbelts on. And three, be careful. Don't go very fast until you learn more about your car. He bought her a new Corvette, a new red Corvette, right? She closes down the pizza hut that night with her friend. And before they leave, they have a couple beers each. Compliments of Pizza Hut. And she's 16 years old. She gets in her car. She gets perpendicular to the driveway to get out. And she puts her foot on the gas, goes across the street and hits a telephone pole and demolishes this brand new Corvette. They're plastic anyways. It just demolished it, right? <clears throat> the dad comes in to me. He said, Dad, what do you do with a girl like that? I said, what do you do with parents like that? I said, I'll tell you what I would do right now. 
I would take that new Corvette, I would have it towed to my front yard in front of all my neighbors and my friends in this exclusive gated community, and I would put it in my front yard where she had to get off the bus every day from school while she was finishing her high school and see the damage she did because of her stupidity and her disobedience. You know what they did? They got her another car. You know what she did? She wrecked it. You know what they did? They put it in their front yard for all their friends and neighbors. <laughs> they finally did the right thing, but it took them two cars. Don't be indulgent to your children. My son wanted a Bible, for goodness sakes. He, was just, he just learned to read. I said, are you kidding? I would never get you a Bible. He said, Dad, why? I said, son, people have Bibles all over their house, all over this neighborhood, and they're collecting dust on their shelves and on their coffee tables. They're not reading them. Why do I think you would do anything different? He said, Dad, I promise you I will read it. I said, well, we got a family Bible. If you read that family Bible from cover to cover, we'll talk about getting you a Bible. So every day, I would come home from work, he would run up and get that big family Bible, come down the stairs, and he would show me where he was at, and he would have a list of vocabulary, because I gave him a King James version. He'd have a list of vocabulary words that he wanted to know what it meant. And he finished that Bible in record time for a kid who just learned to read. And uh, I got him one of those precious moment Bibles that were real popular back when he was six years old. And uh, about the third week he had it, he took it to church, left it on a pew, and somebody stole it. I said, see what I told you? You're not taking care of your Bible. Don't be easy on them. You're trying to make warriors out of them, not wimps. He spent 15 years of his life in Turkey. Started five churches in Turkey. Now he's in Armenia, sending Armenians back to Turkey to give the gospel. A hundred went last year from his little mission school in Armenia the people that slaughtered their grandparents. There was a genocide. Two million people slaughtered that were Armenians living in Turkey. You want warriors. Is there any hope? Is there any hope for your family in the future? The only one that can get the hook out of your mouth. The only one that can set you free from captivity that you let yourself into. The only one. Is Jesus Christ. There's no one else that can do it. He's the one, if you're following the golden bait, that you need to quickly repent of those sinful thoughts, repent of those actions, 
and repent of the evil plans. Repentance means doing a 180. Some people think, think it means doing a 360, and then they're right back where they started. No, it means you head in the other direction from where you're going. Away from Satan's bait towards God. All hell will tell you that you can't risk, resist whatever temptation that captures your mind. It's not true, it's another lie. Remember when Peter saw Jesus walking on the water, he said, can I, Lord, can I come out there with you? Jesus said, sure, come. <laughs> and he did. Started walking on the water, and then he started sinking. And what did he do? <laughs> Lord, save me. If you took the bait from Satan that he threw out, you're now on your way to becoming like Samson, who was deceived into thinking that he was rich and strong and powerful and he needed nothing. And at that time, he didn't reach out to God like Peter did. Peter got saved. Samson ended up tre treading out grain like an ox with the enemy. <clears throat> Turn to Christ today. Don't wait any longer. He's the one who took your eternal punishment. He's the one who defeated death, crushed Satan's head, and can deliver you from your chains. And you say, well, I don't have any chains on me. Yes, you do. You just don't know it. They're spiritual chains, and you're trapped. Don't hold on to bitterness. You may be bitter in your heart towards your mate, or towards your children, or towards your parents, or towards your church. Remember that bitterness is the acid that eats the container. Jonah had a gullet full of bitterness. You think you have a good reason to be bitter. My mother-in-law certainly thought she did. Well, jo Jonah had more than you can imagine. His people's infants had their brains dashed out on their stone streets and on the walls of their homes by their enemies. You can read the obelisk. It's in Turkey. <clears throat> and it tells the whole story of what the Ninevites did to their enemies. Young girls and boys having fishing hooks put in their jaw, chained together by rope and taken to a faraway land to be abused, to be used like a rented mule. Old people slaughtered whole scale. Warriors skinned alive and their, their skin put over their monuments. <clears throat> when God told him to go to Nineveh, that was to him, and he was a popular prophet at that time. He said, I'm, I'm not going to those people, not after what they've done. It would be like 
going to ISIS as a person who's been watched your family killed by him and raped by him and murdered by him. He not only didn't want to go, his family didn't want him to go. I guarantee I know Middle Eastern families and I know how they are. It's like, you're not going there. You're not going there. We'll give you, we'll give you money. You go, you go in another direction. Get away from God. You may, you may have tried to get away from God too. I don't know. I, you can't do it. Jonah found that out. He had to get eaten by a fish, a great fish, and stay in the gastrointestinal juices of that fish for three days. Imagine what he looked like when he came out of there. The God loved these enemies of his chosen people who didn't know their right hand from their left morally. The God who made the plant that brought comfort to Jonah later, that reluctant prophet, also created the Ninevites and chose Jonah to preach a great revival. And that same God gave the enemy of the chosen people of Israel 500 years to repent. You think God's mean? You think God's unloving? 500 years to repent. God is indeed a kind, loving creator, but he's not a tame lion. He isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But there is a hell and judgment for those that don't. Remember, Jonah was called to preach to that city. You're called to give the gospel in this city. How about we Christians today? This nation, our corrupt nation, entrenched in every sin and vice, exporting sin of every vile sort all over the world, from pornography to murder of the innocents to a, from abortion, spending money on pet food, more money on pet food than some small countries have for their GDP, letting prisoners free to kill, maim, rob, and destroy. God has given us, individually and collectively, many years to report. It's interesting, when you go through church history, and especially Israel's history, what you see again and again is God sending prophets to warn people, I'm about had it with you, you better repent. And then he told the prophets, tell them everything I tell you, every single word, but they won't believe you because they're rebellious and stiff-necked, but tell them anyways. I want them warned. And then he sent all the minor prophets, and if you think they're minor prophets, you read what they said. They're not minor at all. It's judgment. It's coming. He said, well, I, I sent you the prophets, and then I sent you famines. You didn't have enough to eat. Your crops failed. I sent it to you saying, wake up. And then I sent you pestilence, diseases, 
diseases. He said, wake up. This is from me, your God. I love you, but you're not going to continue on the trajectory you're going. I am going to judge you. We have an obligation right now, unless we want to commit spiritual malpractice, to tell people to repent now before it's too late. I can't find anywhere in Bible prophecy, and I've looked, where the United States is ever mentioned. The only place, maybe in Jeremiah, where it says everywhere that the Jews had been scattered to, I will destroy that nation utterly. And we have more Jews here than any other nation than Israel. So we need to repent. Ephesians tells us to put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and evil speaking, first to your family and to your friends, and then pity your enemies. Real pity. Real pity is not going, oh boy, I'm sorry about that. No, real pity is giving the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ who died for sinners and took their deserved punishments on himself after living a sinless life for them. A sinless life. Jesus lived. So one they should have lived but didn't. The one we should have lived but didn't. Those for whom he died cried out against his sacrifice. Remember the prophecies. They all were fulfilled. They spit on him. They beat him. Massive hematoma. They mocked him. We've all done the same thing in word, action, and thought. So who killed Jesus many years ago? Who is guilty of a crime so low? I think we all know. But you say, but Dal, it's too late for me. There's no hope left for me to be saved. I rejected Christ. I mocked Christ. I broke his laws. I did what pleased me without even a thought of what it might, how it might affect another human being or my, even my own eternal state or theirs. Then I say, I say, look to the poor sinner who went to the temple to pray. The Bible says he wouldn't even look heavenwards. <laughs> he just cried out and beat on his breast, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. You may say again, no hope, no hope. All is lost for me. I had somebody say that to me this week. Too many sins, too many chances. Well, look again afresh to that dying thief on the cross next to Jesus. The Bible says that both of the thieves mocked Jesus in two of the Gospels. So he started out mocking Jesus and after watching him say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. After they watched his seven words and listened, he repented. How do we know he repented? He had scorned him. 
He, he had rejected him. But at the very end, the very end, asked to be remembered. Remember me when you get to paradise. <clears throat> See Jesus as this thief repents. Turn his sacred head towards that thief and look into those repentant eyes and says those immortalized words, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. No good works for salvation. No popish purgatory. No baptism. Just repentance and belief in Jesus' power to save. Repentance towards God, faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how about you? Are you ready today to see those strongholds of your besetting sins torn down by the mighty gospel of Jesus Christ? The one that makes saints out of sinners, puts new hearts of faith and courage into the once timid, weak, and depraved sinner? Don't wait for another. There is only one name under heaven given whereby we must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus, the name above every name. He alone is mighty to save. He is the only good news. And the Bible says the day you understand it, that he substitutionally gave his life for you, repent of your sins, and follow him, he will save you. He's the only good news. Today is the day of salvation, if you've listened. I see people nod off sometimes in warm churches. That's what I did the first time I was supposed to hear the gospel. Literally. Uh, I was at a party the night before. A lady asked me to come to church. And I, uh, I said I'd come. And I lived down at the beach and surfed. And I got drunk the night before church. Uh, fell asleep in my puke on the sand. Woke up in the morning a mess. And said, oh, i got to go to church. And so I cleaned up a little, brushed my teeth, and went to church. And I slept through the entire sermon. It was Tim LaHaye's church in San Diego, big church. Tim LaHaye wrote the Left Behind series. But Tim preached. I didn't hear a word of it. But uh, Pastor Jeremiah was in the back. He was a youth pastor then. And on the way out, he grabbed my hand. And he shook my hand. And he looked me in the eye. And he said, have you accepted Christ as your personal Savior? I said, no, sir. He said, you need to do that. I, need, I did need to do it. I waited two more years. But I did need to do it. I should have done it right then. Love your city. Give it the gospel. That's love. God bless the gospel. God bless the fact that he's made it mighty to save and pull down strongholds in our lives, in our friends' lives.
And God bless the men and women of faith from Steamtown Church. And may it be said of all of you, Semper Fidelis, we're always going to be faithful to Christ. That's what God wants from you. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we do realize that your gospel is mighty to save. It transforms lives of really creepy sinners like me. Thank you, O oh God, that you're merciful, you're good, you're kind, that you are long-suffering. And thank you that you're just and that you will have your way in this world. So God, bless this church, bless everyone in it, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.